Church, what an awesome time of worship that in the crushing and in the pressing, God is at work in the challenges of our lives, creating something new. That sets us up really well for where we're gonna go today. So worship team, thank you. Thanks, thanks so much for your list. Would you join me in just thanking them for leading us this morning? Thanks, you guys. Well, hey, my name is, is Andrew. If you don't know me, I'm so excited to get to be with you. Welcome to those of you who have been here at our church for a long time. Who's been here a long time at First Free? Anybody? We are so thankful for you and just your investment in our church family. Welcome as well if you are new. If this is the first Sunday that you are checking us out, we are a church that loves the Bible and loves studying God's word and applying it to the challenges of our lives. So we are so glad that you are here with us today to, to join into that wherever you're at on that journey, whether you're skeptical, new, just, just curious, wherever you are at, man, we're so glad that you're here and welcome as well to those joining online. We're gonna be at Acts 24 today, so if you wanna go ahead and turn there in your Bibles now, you can. It's an amazing passage, and I'm really excited to study it together. The title for our message today is Gospel Integrity in High-Stakes Situations. Gospel Integrity in High-Stakes Situations. We're gonna talk about that phrase, gospel integrity, and what it means, and how we can have trust in God in those high-stakes situations, those tough moments in our lives. We're gonna see Paul show an incredible amount of gospel integrity in a high-stakes situation for him in Acts 24, where the future of his ministry and even his life is on the line as he's in a, a major trial before a powerful Roman governor. But before we dive into our text, I wanna set up where we're going with just a few minutes here on high-stakes situations. High-stakes situations are those moments that have a big impact on us and on other people. It's the moments that keep us up at night where we're, we wonder if we did the right thing, the moments that cause us stress, that, that cause us lots of anxiety. They can happen in our business, in our career, where we face tough decisions that are gonna impact lots of people, maybe our coworkers. They can happen when we face ethical dilemmas in our career. That also can happen in our family as we care for older or, or aging parents and we wonder, how do we, how do we do this well? How do we walk with them? Or maybe you're a parent and you have to make a big decision that's gonna have a big impact on one of your kids. That's a high stakes moment. For those of you who are students, any students in the room today for second hour? Man, for those of you who are students, yeah, I see some of you guys out there. Maybe you face a high-stakes situation with your friends where you are put in a moment of peer pressure and you know tempted with something and you have to decide how are you gonna respond. It's gonna impact how your friends view you and maybe how they include you moving forward. Man, high-stakes moments, the big moments of our lives. But it's also true that high-stakes moments happen in just the everyday and, and the ordinary because how we respond in those really big moments of our lives, it's also shaped by hundreds and even thousands of smaller decisions that we make every day. And so when you face a tough temptation, that's a high-stakes moment. When you face conflict in your family, that's a high-stakes moment. When you get hit with something that was just completely unexpected, even in the everyday, that's a high-stakes moment because it's forming and shaping our character and our integrity and who we are. And those are really the, the highest stakes of all, who we become as people. 
So high stakes moments, the tough moments of life, and man, they happen every day as well. And I felt one of these in my own life recently. Did anybody else have a tough month of February with just a lot of sickness in your family? I know there was a ton of sickness that was going around. That definitely hit us really hard. And so there were a few extra mornings this month where I needed to take our kids to school. Now, normally Amber, who's here, she takes our kids to school and it goes really well and she manages to not catch anything on fire. Not the case so much for me because I had this morning where I was getting everybody ready. Everything was going wrong. My kids were being super misbehaved and uh, I did what any sane parent would do and I locked myself in the bathroom for a moment just to kind of get away from it all. And then I smelled something burning and that is never a good moment um, when you're a parent. I ran to the kitchen. I realized I had left the stove on from breakfast. I had put my son's lunchbox on the stove and it was kind of low key, um, smoldering, smoking. There was a hole through it. My son's goldfish that I had packed did not fare very well. Um, Yeah, Caden asked me the other day, Daddy, what happened to my lunchbox? And Amber reminded me, I said, I'll tell you later, son. I'll tell you when you're older. it wasn't, it wasn't a good moment. And I kind of had to laugh inside. I kind of wanted to scream. And I'd really been struggling with frustration that morning. It was just a reminder. It was like God nudged me and just said, Andrew, you're trying to do all of this in your own strength. You're tired, you're exhausted, you're getting frustrated at your kids, you're not being kind to them. And you're trying to do this everyday moment that suddenly became high stakes because something's on fire. You're trying to do it in your own strength. And man, I think that is... That's really our tendency. There's something about high stakes moments, whether it's every day or the really big moments, they reveal our true character. They expose where we ultimately place our trust, our hearts in high stake moments. They want security. They want something to turn to, to look to, that gives us a place of safety. So whatever that thing is that we go to, that we look to, maybe it's just trusting ourselves. It shows where we place our trust. And instead of, instead of trusting God in high stakes situations, we, we really tend to trust ourselves. It isn't necessarily always wrong. We can trust ourselves in a way that reflects a trust in God, but man, more often we trust ourselves in a way that rejects God. And literally, in my case, and metaphorically, we catch lunchboxes and relationships and situations on fire. And it leads us farther and farther away from integrity. So the question that I wanna look at together today as we go to God's word is when we face high stakes situations, how do we become people of integrity? And I think that word become is in process. It is a, it is a process. It's, it, that word become is important. It's something that God leads us through where he transforms us and, and grows us. How do we really truly become people of gospel integrity? What we're gonna see in our passage as we see Paul in a high stakes situation is the insufficiency of trusting ourselves and the sufficiency of trusting in God. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's start with a really quick review of where we've been. At this point in the book of Acts, Paul has traveled back to Jerusalem. He has an offering for the Jewish believers to build unity between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. But this huge controversy erupts and there's a riot. Paul is arrested. Two weeks ago, we saw Paul's defense before the Jewish high council. Adam preached there, an amazing message. And he also, if you missed it, gave our all in uh, kind of focus for this next year. So if you happen to miss two weeks ago, I'd really encourage you to go back and, and listen to that message, both for context today and to hear about the all in theme and how God is, is leading us this year. Then last week, John Richardson preached an amazing message about God's sovereignty and his providence. We saw that 
God protected Paul from a murderous plot, these Jews who bound themselves with an oath to kill him, that Paul is led safely by hundreds of Roman soldiers, ironically, to Caesarea. And Caesarea is the place where our text takes place today. It's in modern day Israel, about 75 miles from Jerusalem. And here's one artist's rendering of the place where Paul was likely imprisoned at our text today and where he stood trial before Felix, this Roman governor that we're gonna read about. This was called Herod's Palace or the Roman Praetorium. It was a place that Herod built of Roman power. It's a, it was a beautiful uh, area, the Mediterranean Sea. There was a huge racetrack for chariot races. And this was just kind of a Bastillion of, of Roman power. In 2019, our church actually got to visit this very site and I got to go on that trip. And so here's a picture of what it looks like today. You can see the rocks jutting out into the ocean, beautiful place, the, the horse tracing, racing track in the background. This is very likely the spot that we'll read about today where Paul's in prison and on trial. And I think it's just a neat reminder that these are real people real life situations that really happened, real life high stakes situations with real consequences that, that involve real characters. Speaking of characters, there's three main characters to keep track of today. There's the Apostle Paul. We've met him already. He's our main character right now in Acts. We'll see his integrity in this high stakes moment. There's Tertullus. That's a name that we, you don't come across very often in, in modern English, but he's a lawyer and an orator who is gonna bring the case against Paul. And then Felix, who's a fascinating character. He's this corrupt, powerful, kind of violent Roman governor. And he's the one who holds the power over what happens to Paul here. We'll walk through and see in these characters different characteristics of how they trust or don't trust God. And we're gonna learn about a lot about God's call on our lives to, to trust him. So let's pray together. Let's dive into this passage. Father God, would you take us deeper into trusting you today? We need that so badly in our lives. I know there's many places where we're facing high stakes moments, God, tough decisions that require integrity, that require your help. And so through the words in this passage, would you help us and take us deeper into following you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start together in verse one. Acts 24.1 says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. Ananias was the wicked and corrupt high priest that we met two weeks ago. He was the one who had Paul slapped in front of the Jewish high council. He comes with this big entourage of Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, who was like the prosecuting attorney to present the case. It's noteworthy to point out that Paul is really outnumbered here. It's just Paul defending himself. And there's Ananias and this whole council and this lawyer. And so if you have ever had a lot of people aligned against you in a situation, you know what it feels like to be Paul in this moment. Let's continue here at verse two. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. And it's interesting, when we look at history, the prosecuting attorney always went first in Roman court scenes. And what, what we read here, historians and scholars say, follows so closely with the information we have about Roman trials that they view this as source material where they can learn about that. Just a, another instance of the historicity and how we can really trust in God's word. But Tertullus here is presenting before Felix. And let's talk about him for a moment. He is a violent, 
corrupt governor. We have a lot of information about him from history that kind of corroborates what, what we see here. He was brutal in how he crushed revolts in his area. He would have held power and sway, not only over Caesarea, but Judea, Jerusalem. So any riots or legal difficult cases would have come under his jurisdiction. So that's why Paul is brought here. But he just generally wasn't a very good guy. He wasn't well regarded as a leader. Uh, he was inept, he, he took bribes, crime rose during his seven-year reign. He's just not someone who's well-respected. But it's really interesting because Tertullus jumps in with a, a bunch of flattery here. Listen to, to what he says. He, he goes, you have provided a long period of peace for us Jews. That's, that's not true at all, actually. And with foresight, have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't wanna bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. Can you pick up on the flattery there? It really comes out in the message translation that Eugene Peterson does of, of the text. I like, I like how he translates this. He says, you've provided a long period of peace for us Jews. With foresight, have enacted reforms for us for all of this. Your excellency, we are very grateful to you, but I don't wanna bore you. Please give me your attention for only a moment. It was conventional to flatter a judge, kind of to win favor with him, but Tertullus is really going over the top here by calling him wise and gentle and saying that the Jews appreciated him. It's just not true at all. Uh, in the least, the Jews only really wanted to work with Felix if there was something they could get from him that they wanted. So that's what's going on here. And it's interesting, I think, that Tertullus starts with flattery. I read an interesting quote about flattery. Keith Christensen says this, instead of doing things God's way, speaking honestly, and thereby trusting in God to bring about ultimate good, the flatterer trusts in his own ability to control people in situations by means of his own ingenuity and dishonest ear tickling. Turn to your neighbor and tickle their ear. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That'd be so weird. That'd be, that'd be super weird and freaky. But next time you're tempted to flatter, think about that phrase, dishonest, disingenuous ear tickling. But even more, what I love about that quote, and you can pull it back up on the screen here for just a minute, it, it gets kind of underneath the surface of, of what flattering is. Yeah, Scott, if you wanna go ahead and pull that up. The flatterer trusts in his own ability to control people or situations. Do you see that? Underneath flattering, it's not just being nice, it's not just greasing the wheels, it's using dishonesty to control other people. It's kind of a heart posture of, of trust, that trust in yourself instead of trusting God. And, and being truthful. And we see more of that here in, in Tertullus. We see the way that he trusts himself because he moves from flattery to, to dishonesty, which is probably something we should be wary of when someone starts with flattery. Man, often it can move to dishonesty. But look at number five, just a string of false accusations against Paul. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, literally a plague or a pestilence, who's constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world, not, not true. He, that's not who Paul was. There's always other people who, who stir up the riots. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. That was probably a subtle jab at Jesus' obscure hometown in, in Nazareth. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. Also, again, not true. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimes in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. It's interesting, they don't have any witnesses here to, to prove any of this. And they just seem to, Tertullus seem to say, oh, this is just obvious. But again, not, none of this is all 
is true. It's just blatant dishonesty. What we see here from Tertullus, this is a high stakes moment from him. Don't miss what's happening here. He's paid and asked to bring charges against an innocent man that could get him put in prison and possibly killed. That's a high stakes moment. Imagine if you were put in that position, what what would you do? And Tertullus turns to flattery and dishonesty and just a lack of integrity. Those were the things that he trusted in. Isn't it interesting? He was probably really good as a lawyer with words. That was probably his greatest strength, but he twists that and it almost becomes his greatest character weakness in this high stakes moment. I said earlier that high stakes situations tend to expose our character and they expose what we really trust in. And I think the principle here that we see from Tertullus is the insufficiency of trusting in ourselves and especially the sinful strategies that we tend to turn to in high stakes situations. I think all of us have strategies that we go to. Some of them may be sinful, some of them not so much, but either way, there can be a heart posture when we encounter something difficult that tries to keep God at arm's bay. You know, God, I'm gonna trust myself. I'm gonna deal with this in my own strength. Maybe you go to anger or maybe like Tertullus, you use words as a way of, getting what you want. Or maybe on the other side of that, you go to silence, try to manipulate people by controlling the situation, by getting really quiet or going to a place of fear, maybe running after a a coping mechanism. All of us have our, our own strategies. And I think one of the most common ones is just to grit our teeth and trust on ourselves and try to get through it. But that's insufficient if we wanna live a life of integrity. We'll end up feeling alone and exhausted and tired without God's help. And if our heart posture is, God, you stay out of this, that's gonna lead us away from integrity every single time. The insufficiency of of trusting ourselves. So there's a question for you, for all of us to wrestle with. What's your strategy for dealing with high stakes situations? Where Where do you tend to go? And is that leading you towards integrity or is it leading you away from it? With Tertullus, we see it's not sufficient. It's not wise to trust ourselves. We need God. And in the next part of this passage, we're gonna see Paul's defense. And it's such a contrast to what we see at the first part of this chapter where we see flattery, dishonesty, a lack of integrity. Paul's defense is incredible. It's honest, it's real, it's humble, and it shows an incredible trust in God. Now, this is a longer section of scripture. As I'm reading it, I'd like for you to think about a question. What words would you use to describe Paul's defense? We'll read through this together. I'll make a few comments and have a moment of interaction. I'd love for you just to calm out. How would you describe describe Paul's defense? Let's dive back in here at verse 10. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. Isn't that great? He basically just says, yep, you, you have been a judge. There's no flattery at all. He's respectful. He's, he's, he's real, but there's, there's no flattery or dishonesty. He continues, you can quickly discover I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. He's so just straightforward and honest. And then in a really cool moment, he brings God into his defense. And maybe for Paul, it was a temptation just to leave God out of it. Knowing what we know about Paul, he's, he's always bold and he, he proclaims his faith in God. And it's no different here. I admit, Paul says, that I follow the way, which they call a cult, 
I worship the God of our ancestors. I firmly believe the Jewish law, everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, quick pause. These Jewish elders are here to try to get Paul imprisoned or killed. And Paul looks over and in a high stakes moment, he actually builds common ground with them. He says, hey, here's where we're the same. Here's where our perspective is, is similar. Man, that's, that's incredible from Paul. In verse 16, and we'll come back to this one later because it's an important one. He says, because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. Then he continues his defense. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me, no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there. They ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. They're they're the witnesses that are missing from the prosecution. Ask these men here, what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for that one time I shouted out, I'm on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's Paul's defense. I'm curious, what stands out to you? What words would you use to describe that? Go ahead and just shout them out. What comes to mind? Simple, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. What else? Factual, yeah. What did you say? Compelling, yeah. Yeah, what else? Straight to the point, very direct. Doesn't beat around the bush at all. Very relatable. Yeah, definitely. We can all feel like we've been in a similar moment, possibly. Yeah, it's really good. The key word that really stood out to me, that it's strong, it's humble, it's honest, all the things you said. And I think we could sum that up just with the word integrity. Integrity. Paul's integrity just shines through here. Who he was, that he was building common ground with those who were trying to convict him. He was bringing an offering to build unity. He wasn't a rebel rouser or leading a rebellion against Rome. These accusations are completely baseless and Paul is just strong and to the point and says that. And there's times where we need to be strong and to the point in a high stakes situation where we may need to say to someone, hey, your version of the story, this is not true. Here's the facts. Paul just, just lays that out and he shows incredible integrity and incredible trust in God in the midst of it. And I think that's really incredible to think about if we zoom out and kind of look at this story from the big picture of the story of scripture, because think about it, Paul was on the other side of the equation in this trial many times in his life, right? Paul was a man who rounded up Christians and cast his vote against them. Paul himself says a few chapters later in Acts, so that they would be killed. So Paul has stood where the Jewish high council stood, condemning him for following Jesus. That's who Paul used to be a murderer, someone who tried to kill Christians. How does someone like that stand before a powerful Roman governor and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I, I follow Jesus as, as my Lord and Savior. Well, it's, it's the transforming power of the grace of God. Paul has this amazing encounter with Jesus and it transforms Paul in, in every part of, of who he is. When we think about the story of Jesus and the story of Paul here, we also remember kind of in the big scope of scripture that Jesus also stood trial before a powerful Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And while Paul isn't condemned here, Jesus was. Jesus is sentenced to die and to be crucified and to rise again. 
But isn't it interesting that Paul, Paul becomes the leading voice and God's chosen servant to declare the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul knew and proclaimed that Jesus was condemned so we could be forgiven. He paid the penalty we deserve so that we could be set free from sin. And he died so that we could live. Paul shows incredible integrity here. And and how does he do it? It's a gospel integrity. It's an integrity that is motivated and empowered and, and strengthened by the gospel, by grace, by the transforming power of God's grace in Paul's life. The take-home principle to kind of sum all of this up, how how do we become people of gospel integrity in high-stakes situations? It's the sufficiency of trusting in God's grace. It's the power of his grace to to transform us and to work within us. How does that actually change us to be people of integrity? I think there's a positional grace that God gives us where in spite of our sin, he says to us, you are forgiven you are loved, you're my son or my daughter. If you trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is now yours. We have this position of righteousness and holiness that can never be taken away. And then there's also practical grace where God helps us grow. He brings other believers into our lives who can help us take steps of obedience, small groups, studying God's word, praying for each other, even walking through trials and challenges. God uses all of that stuff as practical ways to to help us grow. I know in my own life, there's been many times where I've needed to learn the sufficiency of trusting in God's grace. One of those was when I was a first year student in seminary. I had uh, the idea when I went into seminary that it would kind of be like a lengthy quiet time in a peaceful meadow. That was kind of my sense of what I thought seminary would be like. It it, it was nothing of the sort. I I got in and it was very challenging. Ended up getting in a car accident one of my very first days. It was just a tough year in a variety of of, uh, different ways. And about halfway through the year, someone that I really cared about was in a medical emergency. And it was a high stakes situation. And the way that I responded in that moment where I put my trust Um, it it wasn't a a good moment. I I realized, wow, there was a lack of character and a lack of holiness in how I responded to that. And it really, God used it to show me some huge ways that that I needed to grow. And and I was embarrassed about it. It's like, man, I'm a first year seminary student. I should be so much farther along of this. And God was showing me how, how much I needed to grow in him. But man, in that moment, God just, he really met me with his grace. He reminded me that I was his son, that I was loved, that I was forgiven, that positional grace. And then practically, God showed up with with grace in so many ways in my life to help me grow. He helped me get connected to this other small group where I could learn about steps I could take to grow in following God. This group of guys that I was a part of just showed God's forgiveness to me in such a powerful way. And so the power of God's, God's grace, it showed up in my life and it really changed who I was. When we know God's grace, I think it changes us deeply in our hearts. I think even if we try to be a really good person, we can still do that in a way that kind of holds God at, at arm's length. We can say, God, I've got this integrity thing. I'm, I'm, I'm really doing okay. I don't need your help. I'm a, I'm a good person. I can handle the tough situations that come at me. You can just kind of stay off to the side of my life. And then God in his grace brings a high stakes situation into our lives that we can't deal with something that we can't face on our own strength. And when we turn to God, even though we've been rejecting him, God meets us with his grace there. 
That's incredible grace. And that's what changes our hearts. We realize, wow, God, God really loves me. That's, that's incredible character, who this God is. And it, it transforms your heart to make you want to follow God because, because you trust in him. So man, the, the sufficiency of trusting in God's grace, it's a beautiful thing for the challenges that we face. And so maybe for you, there's a really tough situation in your family. God's grace reminds you, you don't have to face it alone. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle of sin and God's grace offers forgiveness, that positional grace that can never be taken away because of what Jesus did on the cross. Or maybe there's a high stakes situation and you feel like you responded poorly to it. You didn't make the right choice. God's grace takes you by the hand and leads you back in and says, hey, with a posture of humility, with a posture of trust, you can admit where you went wrong and seek forgiveness and, and enter into this again to see if you can make it right. God's grace gives us so much hope for transformation, so much hope as we wrestle with the really tough stuff of life. We can always trust his grace for us. Now, I said earlier that we'd come back quickly to Acts 24, 16, and there's kind of a parenthesis here about just a practical way. We talked about God's practical grace, a practical way that God helps us in the midst of these high-stakes situations. Look at Acts 24, 16. It says, because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. I think that's really the heart of Paul's defense. What an amazing phrase by Paul. I always try to maintain a clear conscience. The word always stands out to me that integrity is consistent. Paul doesn't take a break from trying to be a person of integrity and that he uses his conscience as a tool to help him. He always tries to maintain a clear conscience. What is our conscience? Well, it's, it's an incredible tool that is given to us by God to help us with integrity in the midst of high stakes situations. In Romans 2, uh, Paul says it like this. It's kind of our God-given voice to tell the difference between right and wrong. Uh, Romans 2 says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts, get this part, for their conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So when you face a high stakes situation, God can use your conscience to help. Now we should always check our conscience against the truth of God's word. We should always go to other wise believers and check and say, hey, this is what I think God is saying to me. What do you think about that? But man, our conscience can be a powerful tool. And some of us need to tune in and to listen more to our consciences. It's possible to, to reject our conscience or for it to become dulled and, uh, and even kind of suppressed. And in 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul told uh, his young pastoral protege, Timothy, cling to your faith in Christ. Keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Like a sea captain who just ignores dangerous rocks on the shore and sails right into them. That's what we're like if we just ignore our conscience. And so some of us need to tune in and to listen and to respond. But it's also possible to have an overly sensitive conscience and even to feel guilt for past sins that have been forgiven by God. And for those of us who may struggle with that because of your personality or your life story or just who God's made you to be, hear these words from Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. Since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. 
for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. Isn't that good news? The perfect blood of Jesus Christ, which covers over our sins and forgives them no matter what we have done, it covers over our guilty consciences and makes us clean. So our conscience can convict us and help us if we're struggling with sin, but it can't condemn us because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me say that again, just just so it hits home. Our conscience can convict us, but it can't condemn us. There's no condemnation for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's all because of how he loves us and how he died for us on the cross. We've seen the sufficiency of trusting, or the insufficiency rather, the insufficiency of trusting ourselves, the perfect grace-filled sufficiency of of trusting in God and, and his gospel, how that transforms us. And just here at the end of this passage, we see high stakes situations give us an amazing opportunity to turn to God. There's an, there's an opportunity. When life gets tough, when you face something really challenging, there's an incredible chance to turn to God and to trust him. And we see this in the character of Felix. Look with me in verse 22. It says, at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives, then I'll decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and and take care of his needs. It's really interesting. Felix, remember, is this brutal governor, kind of corrupt, known for taking bribes, but he's familiar with Christianity, and he seems a little bit sympathetic to Paul. He gives him some freedom, allows friends to come in and, and help Paul. And then it says this in verse 24, a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him. So we sent for him quite often and, and talked with him. This is very consistent with what we read of Felix in history. He's always kind of looking for his own personal angle. How can he benefit from, from a situation? After two years went by in this way, that's a long time, two years to be in prison, even with some measure of freedom. After two years went by, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. It's a good callback to John's message last week. We, Acts doesn't give us a reason of why was Paul left for two years in prison? I'm sure it was frustrating for Paul. God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Why am I, what's up with this two-year delay? Paul, we know at this time, wanted to get to Rome. The text doesn't give us a specific reason, but as John said last week, and if you missed the message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We can trust that God was still sovereignly at work, bringing about his purposes and his plan for Paul. And we don't specifically know what that was, but maybe a part of it was this opportunity to minister to Felix. Because here's this powerful Roman governor who basically his word is the ultimate authority in the land. And yet he and his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, they come to Paul and they, they want to hear from him. I wonder what it was that drew Felix to hear from Paul. It's interesting. There's a little bit in history about Drusilla. We know that she was very beautiful. One author tells us she actually got married when she was 15, which was not uncommon in that day. But then as a 16-year-old, Felix convinced her to divorce her husband and marry him. 
So here's this couple with all this brokenness in their story, and they're, they're drawn to Paul. They wanna hear from him. And what does Paul say? Well, he tells them about faith in Jesus and self-control and righteousness and the coming judgment. Man, Paul doesn't beat around the bush, right? That's a, that's a tough message to hear. Self-control, righteousness, and the coming judgment. That's exactly what Felix needed to hear given his character and who he was. And it's so intense for Felix that he becomes frightened. Man, the gospel is deeply comforting when we accept it, but it can be frightening for those who reject it. It can be intimidating. And Felix says, go away for now. I'll, I'll call you when it's more convenient for me. And at one level, he's saying that to Paul, but isn't it also true that Felix is saying that to God? Think about it. This is Felix's high stakes moment. It's the ultimate high stakes moment for him where he can respond and turn to the gospel and, and actually trust in God. I mean, he's got no one other than the apostle Paul, like speaking to him, discipleship session after discipleship session with the apostle Paul. What do you think Paul would say to you if you had an hour with him? It's interesting to think about. It's a high stakes moment for Felix where he can respond, but it seems like Felix misses it. What a missed opportunity. High stakes situations give us an opportunity to turn to God. There's a chance to, to trust him and to follow him. And so in the midst of the challenges that you're facing in your life, there's an opportunity there. You can trust in yourself. You can show up and be present and trust in God. I got to go to the St. Louis City game uh, last week on, on Tuesday night, and it was really fun to watch. And there was a new player to St. Louis City who got in in the last five minutes of the game. Score was one-to-one. -one, and, you know, when, when you're a soccer player, you get in in the last five minutes of the game. There's not a whole lot that you can do with that. But he hustled. He got himself in a good position, a fortunate bounce. It actually scored the goal to win, right? I thought, what a cool, what a cool story of this guy who gets in for just five minutes in a high-stakes situation. He scores the goals, first five minutes at MLS. Maybe for you, what you're facing is not as exciting as a soccer game, and maybe it's, it's really challenging. But maybe there's a big opportunity for you to turn to God. Maybe this is your moment to turn to God. Maybe he's been seeking you for a long time. This is your chance to turn to him and to accept his grace. The good news of the gospel that because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, God loves you and accepts you as a son or daughter and that God will walk with you through all of life to help you. Don't you want that? God's offering that for you in this moment. Man, for those of us who are just in the everyday struggles of following Jesus and parenting and doing life and, and our jobs, let's continue to, to trust in him. He'll help us. Our positional grace never changes. We're his sons and daughters loved by God. And practically, God promises to help us as we trust in him. So what are you trusting in this morning? How is God leading you to become a person of integrity, not by your own strength, but an integrity that flows from God's grace in your life. Let's get ready to pray together. We're gonna to sing one final song. It's one of the favorite songs that we like to do as a church called Gratitude. Often we sing this saying thank you to God for his blessings. I think today we can sing this saying thank you to God for the good news of the gospel, maybe for accepting that and receiving that, or there may even be an opportunity to say to God, thank you for the challenges in my life. In spite of this really difficult high stakes moment that I've been facing, God, thank you for how that is teaching me to rely on you and trust you. Let's pray. We'll sing together. God, we bring you our hearts this morning. 
we are so incapable and insufficient in ourselves to, to do anything in our own strength, God. And eventually, even the strongest and the smartest of us realize that. God, when we hit that place, would you be there to meet with every single one of us, to catch us with your open arms, to welcome us into relationship with you? Teach us how to trust you, God. Teach us how to truly be people of integrity so that we can shine as a light for you. And may your grace work so powerfully in our church family that that we would be known as as a body of people who who love you and love others and, and follow you with all that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name.